quite amazed at uh, what happens at the, all over the internet these days. So I was in Nairobi a few weeks ago when an international speaker from the Hare Krishna movement in America found me. And some, by his secretary, some man said, can, can I see you? And I said, yeah. how, how, how do you know about me? He said, I've been listening to your sermons. I said, what sermons are those? He said, I've been, I've been listening to you on the Psalms. And I said, I can't remember preaching on Psalms for years. Last time I preached on Psalms was in Cape Town. He said, yeah, I've been listening to your sermons on Cape Town. I said, do you mean to tell me that you are a Hare Krishna man, man in America and you're listening to me preaching Cape Town? He said, yeah. And uh, I, I listened to all of your sermons over, over the internet. And he said, I want to speak to you. And so we, I spent about four hours with this Hare Krishna guy. And we talked about all these years. Nice guy, I really liked him. And uh, unlike most Hindus, the Hare Krishna people are monotheists. They believe in one God. And so we talked about sin and uh, morality and so on. And finally I said to him, uh, so do you believe in any kind of atonement? Can, can you sort of make up for your sins? Can you atone for your sins in any way? And he said, he said well, we try. And I said to him, what, what do you mean you try? I mean, I mean how, how do you atone for the sins you've committed? And he said to me, this is what he said, he said, it's like an elephant taking a bath. And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, you know, out, out in the bush, the elephant goes down the river and it sprays itself and washes itself and then keeps itself clean and, and, and uh, makes itself beautiful with its trunk in the river. But then five minutes later, it goes back into the bush and it's smothered with dirt and dust again. And he said, you know, we're, we're, trying to, we're trying to sort of atone for our sins, but it's like an elephant taking a bath. And I said, so, so, so what do you do about it then? Okay, we, now we can't do anything. All, all we do is, is we just cry to God, Harai Krishna, which means, you know, God, please help us. And I said to him, well, the difference between your gospel is that we believe an atonement has been made by somebody else. And you can put it on it. So I had four hours with this Harry Krishna. But it all began with some guy just, just fantasizing around the internet and uh, picking up a name and listening into sermons. It, it's, it's a bit scary. It, it, make, it makes me know that, that no matter where I am, I better be careful what I'm saying because you never know who might be listening to you. <laughs> Some Harry Krishna kind of America is listening when you're preaching in Cape Town. So um, the Lord has amazing ways of uh, reaching amazing people. So uh, he didn't get saved, but uh, we had a good time together and uh, hoping the Lord will still work in his life. Praise God. So let's continue then with um, our, our theme of the person of Jesus. And uh, I was uh, saying that certain things had to... Uh, I'm trying to get my right time. What are we... What's the time now? What is it? Quarters of 12. Okay. I'm still a little bit on Nairobi time. 11.42. Okay, all right. So if I, pre- if, I, if I preach for an hour and a half instead of half an hour, you know I'm on Nairobi time. But uh, So we're thinking about these preliminaries that uh, had to take place before Jesus really got going in his ministry. And the first was that his message had to be got clear. And uh, he got some help in that because God sent ahead of him John the Baptist to prepare the way. So that when he began to preach his message, it, it was not a political message. He was just picking up from where John 
left off, and so on. But the next thing was that Jesus had to be a man of the Holy Spirit, and that's my theme in this uh, particular time we have together. So let me read again that passage that I read to you. I pick it up from Mark's Gospel. Jesus had to be full of the Holy Spirit, and John said to him, I have baptized you, to, to the people, he said, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so I want us to come to this uh, second theme, that Jesus had to be a man of the Holy Spirit, and he was baptized with the Spirit himself, and he had a ministry of imparting what had happened to him to others. It says in the next verses that when he was baptized, as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened, and the Spirit came down upon him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And so my theme then, this morning, is, uh, the moment, is that Jesus had to be a man of the Holy Spirit. And that's an amazing thing. You, you would think that if anybody did not need the Holy Spirit, it would be Jesus. He was sinless, he never sinned, he had perfect fellowship with the Father, he was divine, he had a divine nature, he was God as well as man, he was God as if he were not man. And he was man as if he were not God. He was so divine that when you see how divine he is, you cannot see how he can be a man. He was so human that when you see how human he is, you cannot see how he can be God. The two seem to be incompatible. One seems to exclude the other. But actually, however great a mystery it might be, he was both. He was God as if he were not man, and he was man as if he were not God. He was fully divine and fully human at the same time, in all points except sin. He didn't sin. So he was was divine. He had God's nature within him. And uh, eventually people worshipped him. The angels worshipped him. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Hebrews says when he comes into the world, he's, God says that all God's angels worship him. The angels worship Jesus. So you would think, well, surely someone who's divine, someone with a divine nature, who's never sinned, who has perfect fellowship with the Father, surely he, he shouldn't need anything extra, anything special. Uh, surely he's, he's equipped, surely he's adequate to be able to minister. But the answer is no. Jesus never did a miracle, never began his ministry, never preached a sermon, never did any, any part of his official work as the Messiah until he had been baptized with the Spirit. He had to be a man of the Holy Spirit. And as his ministry is beginning, before he does anything, before he begins, he is prepared for by John the Baptist, so the kind of Messiah he will be is clarified, but also he receives the power of the Holy Spirit and he demonstrates that he's able to conquer Satan. He goes into that time in the wilderness, Satan attacks him and he demonstrates that unlike the first Adam, he can stand up against the attacks and the temptations of Satan. So he does those three things. Those three things happen before he, before he actually begins and he's baptized. He identifies with sinners, he's called into his ministry and so on. But I want us to to focus a little bit on the matter of the baptism of the Spirit. Although I I ask myself the question, can anything new be said? I mean, after all these years when people have been uh, 
discussing the baptism of the Spirit. And uh, I think most people nowadays have sorted out what side they're on and what they believe and what they don't believe. And uh, I don't know whether anything new can be said. And so I sort of wonder whether I'm, I almost wonder, I don't, but actually I, for a few seconds I wonder, am I wasting my time? No, I don't think I am. But uh, the question is, can anything new be said? Well, what I want to do this morning is try to, um, how should I call it, try to summarize where we've got to in, in the matter of our faith and our beliefs concerning the baptism with the Spirit, picking up from, from these verses and this theme. What's the history of the, of the doctrine? Well, in the Reformation, people like Calvin and so on emphasized the Holy Spirit. Calvin is often called the theologian of the Holy Spirit. But if you read Calvin, his great, and the institutes that he wrote in the 16th century, his emphasis is on what he called the secret work of the Spirit, which is that uh, when you're coming to faith, the reason why you're coming to faith is that there's a, a secret work going on in your soul, back under, under the surface, so to speak. You're not especially conscious of it, but under the surface, the Holy Spirit is the one who's opening your mind. He's the one who's bringing you to God. No one can come to me, says Jesus, unless the Father who sent me draws him. There's a secret drawing of the Holy Spirit. And uh, Calvin's emphasis was on this kind of hidden work of the Spirit, and it's the Spirit who brings you to new birth and new life and works faith in you. That, that was Calvin's teaching. But it's, if you think about it, it's non-experiential. What I mean by that is you're not feeding anything. It's not an experience. You're not conscious of anything. There's a secret work of the Spirit. And so that was the, the emphasis of the Reformers. And... Um, It's a complicated story, and I'm not sure how much I should try it to tell you. But um, in some ways, I think the Reformers were reacting against medieval mystics. You, you know what a mystic is? A mystic is a person who reckons he has a direct uh, conscience of God. He, God speaks to him, he has dreams, visions, he has a direct and immediate uh, fellowship with God that's conscious and that's got feelings and emotions, he, the mystical direct relationship with the Lord. And in the medieval times, there were, most of the medieval churches were very intellectual. But there were a few guys around, not very many, but a few, who didn't like all this intellectualism. And they said, no, it's not a matter of intellect and doctrine. We've got to know God. We've got to know God personally. And so they had a more, there were a few guys around, not very many, but a few who had this mystical emphasis. Um, I think the one you would know the most is, is Francis of Assisi. Most people know about Francis and his preaching to animals and so on. And uh, I don't know whether he got any saved, but uh, he used to preach to these animals and uh, had a great doctrine of creation and, and a kind of a direct awareness of God. And there were others, uh, Thomas Kempis and the Imitation of Christ and a few others like that. But um, those men really failed. The, the, the mystics never, never gave a real answer to the struggles of the, Catholic, the medieval Catholic Church. Luther flirted with them a little bit. When Luther was seeking salvation, he toyed for a, with a, few, for a few years, he toyed with um, a number of mystical writers and tried to find God by, by reading these mystical writers. He, he actually reprinted the books of one of them and, um, and so on. But actually, it didn't give him peace. He never found peace through the mystical writers. 
In fact, if anything, they made him worse. He asked or killed himself trying to try God and live all these disciplines. He never found peace until he he discovered justification. When he discovered that that Jesus gives us a covering righteousness, then he found peace. When, When he saw what Romans 17 meant, that God gives us a righteousness, he said, then I was born again. I read the whole Bible with new eyes, and it immediately gave him peace. The mystics never discovered justification by faith. Luther did. And so the mystics, in some ways, let the, those inquirers and seekers looking for peace with God, the mystics let them down because they themselves never had much assurance of salvation. They were trying to have these visions and dreams and contact with God, but they never had much assurance of salvation. They never, so no one discovered assurance of salvation until they discovered the, the, the power of the blood of Christ and the covering righteousness of Jesus. Then they entered into assurance of salvation. And so I think, my, my guess is, it's only a sort of guess, I don't think I could prove it, but my guess is that their emphasis on the hidden work of Christ and, and not liking experiences too much is because they're reacting against the mystics. The mystics let them down. The mystics had all these experiences and visions and dreams. They were charismatic sort of people, but they didn't find peace. They didn't find assurance. And so the, the, the first generation of the reformers in many ways had a kind of non-experiential faith. You, you'd never, you never find Calvin talk about uh, outpourings of the Spirit or baptisms of the Spirit in, a, in any kind of experiential way. He, he's, that's not his emphasis. But later on in the 17th century, largely among the Puritans who, who carried on studying Scripture and so on, you get other men who began to, to stress not the secret work of the Spirit, but the experience of the Spirit, the actual consciousness and awareness. In fact, my book, which is at the back there, The Baptism of the Spirit by, about Lloyd-Jones, gives you a little history of the subject. I've just remembered this there. It goes from Calvin to Sibs and Thomas Godwin and, and Lloyd-Jones. It gives you a bit of history. And uh, slowly, the Puritans discovered these teachings in Scripture about experiencing the Spirit. His, his Spirit witnesses with our spirits that we are children of God. We have not received the Spirit of bondage to go back into fear. We have received the Spirit of adoption in whom we cry, Abba, Father. And so from about the 17th century onwards, more, there were more people around stressing the, the consciousness and awareness of the Holy Spirit. And uh, that went on, and it was intensified with the Methodist movement. The Methodist movement in the 18th century was really a movement about assurance and the seeding of the Spirit and the consciousness and awareness of God. And you remember how it be, how the famous events, May the 24th, 1738, the famous uh, so-called conversion of Wesley. I don't think it was his conversion. I think it was his baptism with the Spirit. But um, in... May 1738, May the 24th, a famous date. If you are a Methodist, you will know that date. He goes into a meeting at Aldersgate Street, I think it was, in London, and uh, someone's reading from Luther. Interesting, he's reading from Luther. And as someone's reading some book from Luther, Wesley says, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And suddenly there's a, a warming of his heart. I felt sure that I had been rescued from the law of sin and of death. And he immediately transforms him. And though he'd been saved for years, I think, Luther, I think Wesley got saved in 1725, 13 years after his becoming a minister, an Anglican preacher, uh, and trying to be a missionary, going to America and, and doing all these things, serving God for years. But 13 years after that, there comes a day when, when he gives, is given an assurance, he's baptized with the Spirit, and immediately he becomes a man of power. Immediately, people begin to be saved, and the Methodist waking begins. 
didn't begin with Wesley, it happened three years earlier with George Whitfield. He's seeking God and, and, and one day he's in some room in Oxford and God pours the Spirit upon him. Immediately it transformed. The same thing happens to Howell Harris and, and uh, others in Wales and in America and the, the evangelical revival begins. And Methodism was not a denomination. It was a, uh, to begin with, it was a spiritual movement inside all the churches. It was Anglican. Uh, John Wesley and George Whitfield were Anglicans to their, to their dying days. Never did they ever leave the Church of England. They were Anglicans all the way through. Only after they died did Methodism become a denomination outside the, the other churches. It was a movement in all of the churches. Most of them were Anglicans. And uh, it led to great uh, revival and outpouring of the three. It transformed Britain altogether as I was saying earlier. And, um, but it was a movement emphasizing the seeding of the Spirit, the outpouring, the baptism with the Spirit, and so on. And that carried on. The, the English church life, British church life, was, was quite experiential, and the Methodist awakening was a powerful movement. It, it really touched every corner of the world. Later on in the history, they disagreed over over predestination and justification. They divide into two movements, the, some of them believing in predestination, some of them are not. But uh, that was a later division. The, the first generation didn't bother about these things. The first generation, what, what made Methodism Methodism was not what they believed about predestination or justification. It was this seeding of the Spirit. That was in common to all Methodists everywhere. What, what made Methodism Methodism, with a small m, not, not a denomination but a movement, was this teaching of the outpouring and the witness. The great, their great term was witness. The witness of the Spirit. That was the great mark of Methodism. And it, it covered the whole world. It reached everywhere. And uh, the missionary movement um, was touched with that feeling of power and, and this sense of having the Spirit poured out upon them. And that went on, I would say, until about 1880, or 1870, 1880. And then that kind of thing uh, died. Um, I'm not completely sure why it died, although I think I can take a few guesses. I think one thing that killed the revival was the rise of biblical criticism. People began to attack the Bible inside the churches. That had never happened before. People had attacked the Bible outside the churches, but nobody had ever been attacking the Bible inside the churches. And if you attack the Bible inside the churches, you will kill any sense of life. The churches will die. The very moment you start attacking the Bible, nothing grieves the Spirit more than attacking Scripture. The church will die as soon as you start uh, getting negative about Scripture. And so in about the 1850s and thereafter, churches began to literally die in Britain. And uh, Victorianism was famous for its morality. Victorian morality is famous, but, but you can't say they were famous for life and energy and power and, uh, and so on. The evangelicalism of, of the Victorian period slowly became non-experiential. And I would think the other thing that, that killed any kind of emphasis on the Holy Spirit was the Keswick Convention movement. The Keswick movement and the various other similar things in Britain in the 1870s was, were movements about um, holiness. They were holiness teachings that we ought to be living a holy life. But they attacked the idea of experiencing the Spirit. The, the, the teaching of the Keswick Convention was that you, you took it by faith, by which they mean you don't sort of feed anything, you simply take it by faith that God's giving you, claim it by faith without, without any experience. And uh, that became very powerful, very influential. The Keswick Convention movement was very powerful. 
And there was another convention, it, it no longer exists, there was another convention called the Brighton Convention. It, it doesn't exist anymore. The Keswick Convention still does exist. But um, those movements taught that the baptism of the Spirit was a non-experiential gift of holiness. It was God, as it were, uh, eradicating sin within you, and you, you had perfect love, and you... It was very passive. Their, their favorite phrase was, you let go and you let God. You just hand over to God, and God uh, lived the godly life in you. It was passive, didn't do anything. Uh, their favorite text was, the battle is the Lord. Or, and they used, they used to use the phrase, let go and let God. That was their favorite phrase. It was very passive and non-experiential and so on. Well, that's not my theme. I, I could argue against that, but that's not my theme. But, uh, but my point is, it did kill any kind of emphasis on the experiential. If you're just taking it that you have the Holy Spirit, we, we don't need any kind of experience. You're just uh, taking it, this, this has happened to you. And that became the kind of dominant theme, I would say, from about 1880 to about 1960, uh, coming to within the lifetime of some of us here. And um, it led to a certain kind of coldness. I, I could give you many examples of that. Even in the Billy Graham Crusades, of 1956 and 1957, the great Haringey Crusades and Wembley Crusades of, of Billy Graham, they were quite proud of the fact that there was never any emotion. You, you get people saying, well, no, this is not emotion. Billy Graham will say, I want you to get up out of your seats and uh, come forward, and people would walk, walk forward calmly and coolly, and they would say, well, see, you see, there's, there's no emotion. It's, this, is not, this is not emotionalism. This is just a cool and calm making of a decision. They, they would almost be boasting that there was no emotion. Just imagine believing you've been delivered from hell and you're becoming a child of God, but no emotion. I mean, it's something, something weird about that, isn't it? But uh, they would almost boast that there was no emotion. It was very much the thing of the, of the 1950s, um, and, th and that kind of period, that, uh, that we were not emotional people. And, and Keswick was very powerful. This, this Keswick teaching was very powerful, that we, we just take things by faith. That all ended, or, or a, a great change came, when the charismatic movement began. When, in 1962, the charismatic movement, stressing the outpourings and baptisms of the Spirit, came across the Atlantic from America to Britain, arrived in Britain about 1962, that started a new trend, that the baptism of the Spirit is not just taking it by faith, it's God pouring out the Spirit upon you, you're talking tongues, you'll have rivers of living water. It was, the, it was the total opposite of what had been taught between about 1880 to, to 1960. And it caused terrific uh, controversy back in the 1960s, if you were old enough. I mean, churches split over it, new churches came into being, people, people got thrown out of colleges. I remember being in Cambridge with David Watson. Did you ever, did you ever know David Watson? was thrown out of Cambridge because he was talking in tongues and thrown out of the round church in Cambridge. Uh, it, was, it, was, it caused a terrific hoo-ha, and churches all over the place split up into, into charismatic and anti-charismatic calves, and new churches came into being, and so on. And so the charismatic movement has went on from that point, and it slowly fragmented, and all sorts of movements came out of it, and so on. And I would think today it's sort of over, but, but its um, repercussions are still around. And nowadays, all, most new churches are, are charismatic. Most new churches are stressing outpourings of the Spirit and tongues and so on. So these things have, 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 have uh, had reactions and reactions and have moved one way and the other for, for centuries now. But it seems to me that uh, 
the time has come where we ought to reassess things and ask ourselves what we believe. For several reasons. One reason is I think the teaching concerning the baptism of the Spirit is actually going out of the charismatic movement. There are actually churches that, that have got a kind of charismatic background. They're believing in outpourings of the Spirit, but, but who are now playing down the, the, the baptism of the Spirit. I've, I've actually read a, a couple of months ago, I think I read an article produced by somebody in New Frontiers Movement, which is, which is a pioneer charismatic movement 40 years ago, somebody in the, in the New Frontiers Movement saying, well, should, should we really believe in the baptism of the Spirit? Surely, surely we all get this at conversion. Going back to the old teaching, something arising out of the charismatic movement, yet going back to the old teaching. And uh, I've heard people sometimes complain that, that no longer is there any kind of emphasis on the, the outpouring of the Spirit and so on. So I think the time has come to, to reassess and ask ourselves a few questions. Jesus, John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water. But when he comes, he, what I do with water, he'll do it with the Spirit. I just get hold of you and I take you down to the River Jordan and I come and I drench you in this water and you come up just dripping from top to toe in water. But it's only water. I'm only just uh, conducting a ceremony that makes you one of the people getting ready for Jesus. But when he comes, he'll do the same thing, only he won't be plunging you into water, he'll be plunging you into the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit, and you'll come up as it were out of that experience, baptized, immersed, drenched, and smothered from top to toe, and with all dripping all over the place, you'll come, with, not, not with water, but with the power of the Holy Spirit. He will baptize you with the Spirit. And uh, I, I'm only the one that, that does this with water, says John, but when he comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And with fire, he says, which is a symbol of judgment. But um, I think the time has come for us to ask what we believe. I wonder what you believe today. Do, do, you, do you believe in the baptism of the Spirit as a definite conscious experience? Or is it something you just take it by faith that you've got? I remember many years ago, back in the 1960s again, attending a conference at which the speaker was... Dr. J.I. Packer, one of the world's leading theologians, the Anglican theologian, great man, he's, he's still alive in his 80s now, living in Canada, but a um, great man of God. And he was speaking at, in, uh, in Swanwick, where we were a few years ago. He was speaking at Swanwick in a conference on, on the work of the Holy Spirit. And uh, he was speaking on the Holy Spirit. And I went to see him after one of the meetings. I knew him vaguely. I studied philosophy under him, so I knew him a little bit. So I went to uh, see him. And I had a question to ask him, and I, I began my question. My question went like this. I said, well, well you know, Dr. Jim, you're, uh, you're teaching that, the bat, that we all have the baptism of the Spirit of conversion, that, it, that it's an initial experience. And I was, I was about to ask him a question, but he interrupted me. He said, I didn't say that. I said, I you know, I, thought, I thought I heard you say the baptism of the Spirit is an initial, an initial experience. He said to me, no, I didn't say the baptism with the Spirit is an initial experience. I said the baptism of the Spirit is an initial event. Now, could you follow that? I didn't say the baptism with the Spirit is an initial experience. I said the baptism with the Spirit is an initial event. Now, do you follow that? He did not want to use the word experience. 
You, you put your faith in Jesus and you get the Spirit. But it's not an experience. I didn't say it's an initial experience. It, it's an event, but it takes place at the bottom. You don't feel anything. It's an event in your soul, but it's not an experience. You don't experience it. You don't feel anything. But you see, he, he's teaching there, and, and, and although I'm, it was a private conversation, I, I don't think I'm exposing him because he would, he would be happy to agree that's what he teaches. But um, you, you see the teaching. The teaching is that the, the receiving of the Spirit is not experiential. It's an event, but you, you're not actually experiencing anything, or, or you're not aware or conscious of anything. And so there's that kind of teaching, and it's especially, especially been the mark of Reformed people, people who follow in the footsteps theologically of Calvin and Luther and so on. There's, this, there's a secret work of the Spirit. That's all there is. There's only a secret work of the Spirit under the surface. There's no experience of the Spirit. I had a similar conversation with John Stott, or the, or the late John Stott. He, he died a few months ago. He came to um, Nairobi some years ago. And again, I'm not breaking any confidences. It's not something that he would object to my sharing. And I went to see him in Silver Springs Hotel in, in Nairobi. And uh, he does use the word experience. If you read his books on the Holy Spirit, he does talk about the experience of the Spirit. But I went to see him... And I said this to him, I said, you know, you use the word experience of the Spirit, but you don't really believe in that. And he said, well, what, do you, what do you mean? And I said, well, you use the word experience of the Spirit, but you, you don't really mean an experience of the Spirit, because you, you don't really believe that in, in receiving the Spirit you actually experience anything, so, so you really shouldn't be using that word experience. And we talked for 15 minutes or so in breakfast time in Silver Springs Hotel, and finally he said to me, yeah, you're right. I don't believe in the that the giving, receiving the Spirit is an experience in the way in which you're using that word. But he said, and this is what he said to me, and I'm, I'm fulfilling a promise. He said, but he said, if you quote me, I want you to tell people, I do believe in joy unspeakable and full of glory. And I said, all right, I'll tell them. But, uh, so I'm keeping my promise. Yeah, he says, no, I believe in joy unspeakable and full of glory, but I don't believe that receiving of the Spirit is something experiential. So there are two questions then we've got to ask ourselves. One is, when do people receive the Holy Spirit? And the other is, what is the nature of the receiving of the Holy Spirit? When you receive the Spirit, is that something which you are to be conscious of immediately or conscious of eventually down, down the road, maybe you may be aware that something happened to you? Is it something experiential? Is it something below the level of consciousness that you, you don't know about and so on? What, what is the nature of the receiving of the Holy Spirit? And when is the Holy Spirit received in this way? Is it inseparably part of conversion? Although you've got it, whatever you believe about that, I'm, I'm just trying to clarify things. I hope I'm clarifying and not confusing. But uh, although you've got to be consistent, if, if you, whatever line you take, you've got to work it out consistently. What I mean by this, well, what I mean by that is this. But if you believe that the Holy Spirit is an experience and you also believe it comes at conversion, then anybody who's not had the experience is not converted. Do you follow that? That's, that's very simple, isn't it? If you, if you believe that the gift of the Spirit is an experience, something you're conscious of, and it's part of conversion, then if you've not had it, you're not converted. I mean, that, that just follows, doesn't it? Which is what people like Wesley believed. I told you just now that what happened to Wesley in 1738, he called his conversion because he believed that receiving of the Holy Spirit was his conversion. 
he changed his mind, actually. Later on, he changed his mind. In, in his journals, he called that his conversion. When later on, he produced second and third and fourth editions of his journals, he added footnotes, and he said, no, I've changed my mind. Uh, and and he, he corrected himself in later years. In his, in his journals, he would say that he was saved on, on May the 24th, 1738, when he received the Spirit. He called that his conversion. Years later, he put a footnote, in and he said, now... I had the faith of a servant, but it was not the faith of a son. That's what he said later on. I had a sort of faith, it was faith, but I was sort of working for God. It was faith of a servant. I didn't really have assurance. I didn't have the faith of a son. So later on, he changed his mind a bit. And of course, in the moment, I'm probably, I'm probably confusing you at the moment, but uh, I hope to clarify things a little bit later. And, and of course, we have to ask the question, what do the scriptures teach? And when you're trying to establish a teaching in Scripture, when you're trying to establish a doctrine and you're trying to work out what you believe, surely the first thing you have to do is to collect and survey the passages that deal with your topic. If, if you were trying to work out what Scripture teaches about baptism or demon possession or, or heaven or the work of the Spirit, the first thing you have to do is to say, well, where, where are the passages that deal with the subject? And uh, that's what you have to do with the baptism of the Spirit. The first question you have to ask is, well, where are the scriptures that deal with the baptism of the Spirit? And if you study scripture, what you will find is, you have to just do a bit of homework and you'll see what I mean, you'll find that uh, there are many, many different phrases that are used with regard to the, the gift of the Spirit. Remember what happens in, in Acts chapters 1 and 2. Jesus said, well, wait in Jerusalem, just stay where you are in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. He uses that phrase, power, receiving power from on high. He uses those terms. And then Acts chapter 2, they're all gathered in one place and uh, they, they say, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? He says, no, but you'll receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. He uses that phrase, come upon you. And then on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out, another phrase being used. You shall be baptized, that phrase is being used, you shall be baptized in the Spirit. They are full, they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they begin to talk in tongues. There's about ten different terms that are used. Can I remember them all? Falling upon, receiving power, receiving the Spirit, um, the Spirit sealing, anointing, earnest, foretaste, first fruits. There's about ten of them. And it's not very, very difficult to prove that they all refer to the same thing. Maybe different aspects of it, but they're referring to the same spiritual event. And so in Acts chapters 1 and 2, about six or seven of them are used, all in the same couple of chapters with regard to one, the one thing that happened upon the day of Pentecost. So when you collect the scriptures that deal with the baptism of the Spirit, there are about 50 of them that directly and immediately are referring to the, the outpouring or the baptism or whatever you want to call it of the Holy Spirit. These promises with regard to John the Baptist where the term, the term baptized is used. You shall be baptized with the Spirit. But uh, that comes about six times or you could say seven depending on your interpretation of one verse. Uh, the term filled is used, the term anointing and sealed, and spirit fell upon them, and they received Did you receive the Spirit when you, when you believed, says Paul to the Ephesians in Acts 19. There's about 50 of those verses. And it's not difficult to prove that they're all interchangeable, they all refer to the same thing. And this is fairly important because um, 
This word baptized has often confused people. And the reason why it's confused people is because of 1 Corinthians 12, 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, You have all been baptized into one body by one spirit. And people argue, and they are right, that that's nothing to do with any receiving of the spirit experientially. It's the spirit putting you into the body of Christ, and you, you become a member of the body, and you, you uh, function as a, as a Christian within the church, within the body of Christ. Nothing experiential about it. The Spirit just puts you into the body of Christ. You may not feel anything. And if you use that one verse, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it's very easy to use that one verse to cancel out all the rest. There's about 50 of them, but you, you can use one to cancel out all the rest. You just say, well, there, there is something that everybody's got. You've all been baptized. It's non-experiential, and you're put into the body of Christ. That's it. That's finished. Nothing more to be said. What you've done is you've used one verse to cancel out 50 other verses. All the other 50 verses are vibrantly experienced. No, nobody was taking anything by faith on the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, was anybody saying, well, I'm taking it by faith? Have they got the Spirit this morning? No, 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 they're not taking it by faith. The Spirit is poured out upon them. They begin to praise and worship, and thousands see that something has happened. There's, nothing, there's, no, there's no taking it by faith there. It's perfectly visible and obvious, and thousands gather to come and see what's happening. No one's taking anything by faith on the day of Pentecost. Uh, but if, you, if you're sort of hypnotized by 1 Corinthians 12, 13, you will use that one verse to cancel out all the others. And that's why surveying your data is, is the first thing you must do, otherwise you're going to go astray. First thing we have to do is survey our data and uh, see what the scriptures are. And it may be that, that different words are used in different ways. The word baptism is used in many, many different ways in scripture. It's used of water, that baptizing water. It's used of suffering. Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized. It's all about going to the cross and suffering. It's nothing to do with water or the Spirit or anything. It's about suffering. You can be baptized. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Or the Spirit can baptize you into the body of Christ. The word baptism in Scripture is not a technical term. Uh, this is what confuses us. The word baptism is not a technical term. It can be used in many different ways. It's just a word that means to put or place. The Spirit puts you into Jesus. No, especially about the word puts. It's a very ordinary word. You mustn't take the word baptism as though it's a technical word. It's not. It's not, it's not jargon. Just a very ordinary word meaning to put, to put or dip or place or immerse something somewhere. It can be used in half a dozen different ways. It's not a technical piece of jargon. And so different verses can mean different things because the word is flexible. They don't get hypnotized by one word. They don't have a, a concordance mentality where... One word's always got to mean exactly the same thing. That's not true. Survey all of the scriptures. See, see all the scriptures that deal with this outpouring, this baptism of the Spirit. And then ask yourself some questions. What, what is the baptism with the Spirit? Is it part of regeneration? Is, is it part of your conversion? What are its central blessings? How does it relate to holiness? How does it relate to witness and power for witnessing to Jesus? How does it relate to the gift of tongues? How does it relate to regeneration, being born again? Is it the same as being born again, or is it something distinct? How does it relate to other aspects of the Christian life? And you, you ask these questions, and you answer the questions from the Scriptures. Having, having collected your Scriptures, knowing what you're trying to find out, and reading the Scriptures, you answer your questions from the Scriptures. And that's what I believe we ought to be doing now. We're 50 years into the 
charismatic movement. We've had all sorts of arguments for 50 years now. It's about time when we sort of reviewed and reassessed and read our Bibles from cover to cover and collect all the scriptures and see all the, oppos- the, the, the uh, possibilities, see what everybody is saying and asking what fits the scriptures. It's time that we did that. And let me try to do it this morning, beginning with the life of Jesus. Because Jesus was baptized with the Spirit. He's baptized with water and, and baptism, amongst other things, is a kind of prayer when you're being baptized, you're sort of praying for God's blessing. And as he is baptized, and he actually is praying, and as he comes out of the water, the, the Spirit is poured upon him, and, uh, and the Spirit comes down upon him like a dove, as even something visual and visible. And the voice comes from heaven in that event. The voice comes from heaven. You are my son. You are my son. He, he already knew that. He, he knew from way back that he was the son of God. When he was a 12-year-old boy, he said, I must be about my father's business. He knew from at least when he was 12 years old that he was the son of God in a very special way. But now this thing that he already knew is, is put to him again. It, it is confirmed and, and Paul's word will be sealed. It is sealed to him. He, he knows more than ever that he is the son of God. The voice comes from heaven in this outpouring of the spirit. You are my son. You already knew that, but he is, is as it were, confirmed and doubled. God's spirit witnesses with his spirit to, to, to use Romans 8.16, that he is the son of God. It is a doubling, a confirmation that he is the son of God. And he gets up out of that water full of power. It's Luke who uh, emphasizes the power. He comes up out of that water and he has a power that he has never had before. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan. I'm reading Luke's version now, Luke chapter 4, verse 1. He comes out of that river Jordan full of the Holy Spirit and he goes not long afterwards into the synagogue at Nazareth and he opens the scroll at Isaiah 61 and he reads Isaiah Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. He uses that word anointing. Same event, same experience, but a different word. He has anointed me to proclaim and uh, he's poured the Spirit upon me and that's given me an anointing and it's empowered my preaching. He's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He rolls up the scroll, he stops in the middle of a sentence and he rolls up the scripture and he says, today, this day of his baptism uh, and of his beginning his ministry, this, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, in your hearing. And he goes out and he's full of the power of the Spirit. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and everybody everywhere hears about what's happened and he teaches them in the synagogue being glorified by everyone. Everyone can see there's this power upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's come and ask our questions then. First of all, what is the baptism of the Spirit? Is it, is it conversion or is it part of conversion or is it inseparably tied to conversion? Answer, surely, surely the answer question is no. I mean, Jesus wasn't getting converted in the River Jordan, was he? Jesus wasn't getting born again in the River Jordan, was he? He didn't need to be born again. Jesus wasn't even receiving the Holy Spirit for the first time. He was born of the Holy Spirit. He was born of the Spirit. The Spirit led, led, in, led his, created his existence as a man. Uh, John the Baptist was full of the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Was Jesus any less than John the Baptist? Surely Jesus always, always, always had the, the Holy Spirit. He was born of the Holy Spirit. Surely he was full of the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He couldn't be less than John the Baptist, surely. 
But now something comes upon him which is not his coming to faith, it's not his being converted, it's not, it's not God bringing him to be born again, that, that sort of thing, you mustn't use that language of Jesus. What's happening to Jesus is he's receiving power. He's already the Son of God, he's already got whatever he's got, he's, he's there already. What's happening is what, what he is, is now being sealed to him, confirmed to him, he's receiving power. And the power is coming through an assurance of sonship. He knows that he is the Son of God, he knows it more than ever. He already did know, now he knows even more. It is doubly sealed him, confirmed. He is the Son of God. And he goes out in the power of the Spirit. It's a power of certainty that he is the Son of God. A power that derives some assurance and knowledge that he is not just any ordinary person. God himself has witnessed what he already knew. God himself has doubly witnessed that he is the Son of God. And that in itself gives him power. He goes out with the power of the Holy Spirit. So what is the baptism of the Spirit? Well, in the case of Jesus, it is, it is an anointing that gives him assurance, and that assurance enables everything else. He goes out and preaches in power because of the assurance that he has. That is the baptism of the Spirit in the case of Jesus, or the sealing, or whatever term you want to use, of, of Jesus. And surely this is confirmed everywhere. Surely you really can't uh, say that the baptism of the Spirit is your conversion. I mean, sure, surely the disciples had come to faith long before the day of Pentecost. As early as John chapter 2, it says they saw his glory and his disciples believed on him. Surely they were in, in faith even in John chapter 2. Jesus says to them when he washes the feet of, of the disciples, he says, you are all clean except one of you. John Judas is not saved at all. But you're all clean. He's already said you must, you must be born of water and the Holy Spirit. You must have a cleansing work of the Spirit. Now, a few chapters later, he says you're all clean, you're washed. In John chapter 20, he breathes upon them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And they, and they, 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 receive, they receive, I can't go into that passage in detail, but I, w- I would say they receive resurrection power. Jesus has just been raised from the dead and he breathes upon them with a new power that Jesus has, the resurrection power. He breathes re- resurrection power into them even in John 20, even before Acts chapter 2. And they're functioning as the church. Be- before, before anything happens in Acts chapter 2, they're functioning as the church. They're all together, of one accord, in one room, they're praying, they're making decisions, they're choosing messiahs. They are, they are functioning as the church. It's not the church. The church is not created upon the day of Pentecost. The church was already there, already functioning, already reading the Bible, already praying, already making decisions. The church is already there. So what happens in Acts chapter 2? What happens in Acts chapter 2 is the church, which is already there, already with believers, already having some, some knowledge of the Holy Spirit, already reading their Bible, already praying, making decisions. But rather timid, rather afraid, rather lacking in assurance, with, uh, behind locked doors and, and for fear of the Jews. They're, they're the church, but they're a bit, bit of a nervous sort of church. And suddenly, I like that word suddenly, when God moves, he moves suddenly. Suddenly! This is what I hope for Britain. I hope for Britain that suddenly something will happen. I'm not saying saying we grow into revival. Suddenly, when we're faithful, when we're Elijah's, when we're John the Baptist, suddenly there'll come a sound like there's a mighty rushing wind. That's what I look for. God moves suddenly. All these Muslims coming into Britain, maybe they'll all be saved on one day. Suddenly, suddenly God will move. 
Suddenly there comes a sound as a mighty rushing wind. Suddenly there are tongues of fire and it's coming upon the whole lot of them. Because though it's coming upon the whole lot of them, it also says the fire divides and comes upon each one of them. Each one of them individually, personally has the same experience. It's coming upon the whole lot together, but it's also coming upon each one of them. It's both corporate and individual, one by one at the same time. And immediately it transforms. Are they being saved? Are they coming to face? Are they getting born again again? I mean, I mean, what's happening to them? Surely what's happening to them is just what Jesus said. They are receiving power. You may want to say to me, yeah, but the reason why that there was a kind of gap between their coming to faith and their receiving power is just because it was the, the, the kind of transition stage. Because, because they were transiting from the old position to the new position, there had to be a, fa- a kind of a stage where they had one but didn't have the other. But now that we've made the transit, we always get everything all in one go. So now it's part of conversion. To which I answer, there only needs to be one person in the history of the world who gets born again first and receives the Spirit second to prove that they're different. There's one person ever in the history of the world who is born again on one occasion and received the Holy Spirit on the second occasion that proves that they're different, surely. And it takes one person of whom that's true to prove that they're different. And if someone is born again and then has received the Spirit, what extra thing does he get on the second phase? The next question I'll ask you is, do you have that second thing? Assuming your conversion, yeah, but did, did did your conversion get the second thing? Did you receive power? Are you full of glory? Are you not hiding behind locked doors but out on the streets telling everybody about Jesus? Have you received power? You know what Dr. Lloyd-Jones used to say? Dr. Lloyd-Jones used to say, if you've got it, where is it? You've got, you get it we've got it, we get it all the conversion. But Lloyd-Jones used to say, if you've got it, where is it? He used to say to them. Surely the baptism of the Spirit is a receiving of power. Is it the same as conversion now? Can you be can you be regenerate without knowing the outpouring of the Spirit? Yes. Is it normal to be regenerate without receiving the Holy Spirit? No. If you answer in the in terms of the Bible, you don't find many Christians in the Bible who, who are saved but don't have the rejoicing of the Holy Spirit. You have a few, but you don't have very many. When, when Paul writes to the Romans, he says, and he says, you've not received the spirit of adoption, you've received the, bond, the spirit of, of adoption, in whom we cry, Abba, Father. You, you, you all know what it is. The spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are children of God. When Paul said that, he'd never been to Rome. He'd never met one of those people to whom he's writing. Well, maybe he knew a few of them, but uh, he, he doesn't know the church of Rome. He's never been there. He's writing, sending a letter ahead of time before he ever goes to Rome himself. He'd never been to that church. But although he'd never been to the church that's meeting in Rome, he takes it for granted that they've all received the spirit, they've got rid of the spirit of bondage, not going back into fear anymore. They have the spirit of adoption in whom they cry, Abba, Father. He takes it for granted that every single Christian in Rome is full of the Holy Spirit, crying, Abba, Father. That just shows you that most Christians in the New Testament times knew the Holy Spirit in that way. Paul can just take it for granted. And so when it doesn't happen, it's a bit of an anomaly. It's a bit of something strange and unusual. When Paul, when Paul meets the disciples in, in, in Ephesus, and they seem to be a bit peculiar, and he's not quite sure about them, he says to them, did, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? And my friend Charlie Pettenberger will tell you, I like to say, it's a bit like going to Paris. If I say to you, 
Did you go to Paris when you went to France? I mean, going to Paris and going to France are not precisely the same. You can go to Paris, you can go to France without going to Paris, or you can't go to Paris without going to France, but you can't go to France without going to Paris. I mean that I know you went to, to France, but I don't know whether you went to Paris. I know you've got one, I want to know whether you've got both. Did you go to Paris when you went to France? Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? It means, well, I know you've believed. What I don't know is whether you received the Holy Spirit. And I know that you can believe without receiving the Holy Spirit. Why ask the question if it's not possible to believe without receiving the Holy Spirit? It would be a foolish question to ask if it's not possible. Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? And, and those men are called disciples. The word disciples has, has already been used about 30 times in the book of Acts. And every previous occasion, the word disciples means Christians. Now, he meets some disciples. That word's been used 30 times already. In each occasion, it means Christians. He meets some Christians, disciples. Not disciples of anybody, just disciples. The common, ordinary New Testament word for Christians already been used 30 times in the book of Acts. He meets some disciples. But they don't seem to be very much rejoicing, very powerful. So he asks them, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? Well, we don't even know that there is a Holy Spirit. That can't possibly mean we don't know where the Spirit exists. It has to mean something like, we don't know that the Spirit has come. John the Baptist, they're disciples of John the Baptist, and John the Baptist said, he'll, he'll baptize you with the Spirit. They're saying, we don't know that this, this day has come yet. They're not talking about whether the Spirit exists we're talking about whether they, they know that what John the Baptist, their, their master, said it's, it's been fulfilled. And they say, well, did you become a Christian? Did, did you put your faith in, in Jesus and get baptized and call upon God for the Holy Spirit? No. All right, let's baptize you now. Put your faith in Jesus. Tell Jesus you, you, you're trusting not in John the Baptist's message, but the full Christian gospel, and call upon God to give you the Holy Spirit. And we're going to pray for you and lay hands upon you. And that's what happened. And the Holy Spirit comes down upon them. They're already rege- Surely they're already regenerate. They've got a kind of faith in, in the Son of God. They're, they're, they're Christians after a, after a fashion. But uh, they're not rejoicing in these rivers of living water. Is, is the gift of the Spirit part of conversion? I, I would say no. And surely Old Testament saints are justified. Abraham was justified. Abraham believed God, and that was reckoned him righteousness. Abraham becomes a child of God. Abraham is justified. Abraham is reckoned to be righteous. He's in the kingdom of God. If he died, he would go to heaven. All Old Testament saints, if they died, they would go to heaven, but they did not receive the sealing of the Spirit. They did not know the sealing of the Spirit, because the Spirit glorifies Jesus, and you can't glorify Jesus until Jesus is glorified. He has to be in heavenly glory, because before the Spirit can show you his heavenly glory. You, you cannot glor- the Spirit cannot glorify Jesus. When he comes, he shall glorify me. That can't happen until Jesus is glorified. So no Old Testament saint knew, knew the, the baptism of the Spirit to glorify Jesus. They didn't even know the name of Jesus. But you can't tell me they were not justified or or not a child of God. Something extra, something higher, something beyond anything known in the Old Testament is coming down upon them. And Jesus actually says that it is closer than knowing Jesus personally. Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I go away. I mean, you disciples, you know me, you meet me every day, you sit sit next to me, we have meals together, you hear my preaching, you know all about me, here you are side by side, we're in daily fellowship. But actually, when I go away, you won't get less of me, you will get more of me. Because when I go away, it's to your advantage, because I'll send the Spirit upon you. The coming of the Holy Spirit is more than the physical presence of Jesus. It's more than Jesus sitting on the chair next to you. 
You know Jesus more closely than if he were sitting on the chair next to you. It is to, even if you have Jesus physically living in your home, that were possible, you will get more of him by the Holy Spirit. It's to your advantage that I go away. You won't get less of me, you'll get more of me. I'll go away and you won't see me. And after a little while you will see me. You'll see me by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'll come back to you again in a different way. And you'll have fellowship with me by the Spirit, which is more than you ever had when you saw me every day of your life. The outpouring of the Spirit is being more close to Jesus than even if Jesus was living in your home. You saw him every day. Your advantage that you don't have him in that way because the knowledge you have by the Holy Spirit is more than the physical presence of Jesus being quite close to you. What is the relationship of the Holy Spirit to sanctification? Well, it's not directly a gift of sanctification. It's not the sins being eradicated. You don't sin anymore. There's nowhere where Scripture says anything like that. Although that was the teaching of the holiness churches of America and of the Kissing Convention movement, except that they said it was non-experiential. What's the relationship of the Holy Spirit to the gift of tongues? Is it absolutely indispensable that you speak with tongues if, when you have the baptism of the Spirit? I answer, no. First of all, it never says that Jesus spoke in tongues. Jesus received the baptism of the Spirit. It never says in, in Mark 1, Luke 3, Luke 4, Matthew 3, it never says Jesus spoke in tongues. If, if the baptism of the Spirit was inseparably connected with the gift of tongues, surely it would have to be mentioned when Jesus was baptized in the Spirit. If it was part of the, the experience, surely it would have to be mentioned in connection with Jesus, but it's not there. Not always mentioned in the New Testament. Sometimes in, in the New Testament someone receives the Spirit and there's not always mention of the gift of tongues. So what's the relationship between the gift of the Spirit and the gift of tongues? Well, the answer is, anything may happen. When you receive the power of the Spirit, anything you've got might be enlarged. Any gifting you've got will be enlarged. If, if you're a preacher, you'll be a more powerful preacher. If you're a Sunday school teacher, there'll be an anointing upon your Sunday school teaching that was never there before. If you're just chatting to your neighbor over the, over the garden fence, there'll be a kind of power upon your chatting over the garden fence that was not there before because there's an anointing, there's a lubrication, there's a kind of flow in what you're saying, which was not there before you knew, knew the power of the Holy Spirit. It will enlarge anything you, you, you've got. And if you want to pray, you may find you, you, you want to pray more than you can actually express in, in words. And, and you may find yourself using things which are non-rational. If you ask me, does every Christian speak in tongues, I answer, it depends on, on how much you define the gift of tongues. The narrower, can, can you follow this? The narrower you define the gift of tongues, the fewer Christians you'll find that fit your description. The looser you define the gift of tongues, the more Christians you'll find that have what you're describing. What I mean by that is this. If you have a very definite picture in your mind as to what the gift of tongues is, you may find that you can't find many people who've got it. But if you have a very loose definition of what the gift of tongues is, tongues can take many different forms. I can think of people, I think of some man I knew, and he prayed in tongues. It sounded like an AK-47 machine gun. I don't think I'd even imitate it. The gift of tongues, it takes many different forms. If you say, does the Bible ever say that every Christian speak in tongues? I would say no. But if you ask the question, does the Bible ever say, ever say that all Christians speak with non-rational praying? I will say yes. 
Romans 8.26, we do not know what to pray for, not how, but what. We do not know, the, the Greek says the what. We do not know the what, the specific thing to pray for. But the Spirit gives us sighs and groanings, things that, that can't put into, they're not, they're not in rational words where you don't even know what you're saying. Just a kind of sigh of the Spirit. The looser you define the gift of tongues, the more, the more likely you are to have it. The more precisely the gift of tongues you define, the less likely you are to have it. Should, should all Christians pray in tongues? I think I was want to say no. Should all Christians say know something of non-rational praying? I think I will say yes. Every Christian ought to know something of prayer, which is not purely rational, where you can't really put into words what you want to say, and you're just sort of praying, oh God, you know, do something, and you, you can't really express. Sometimes you're groaning, sometimes you're weeping, sometimes you're sighing. Different people do different things, different people are made different ways. Some are more emotional than others, some, some are not necessarily sort of very weepy. Others are, we're all varied, but there's such a thing as, as non-rational longings which you're trying to express for God. Every Christian should know something of that. And don't you know times where you do not know what to ask God to do, and you don't even know what to say, but somehow you just cry for something, you don't even know what you're saying, but God, you know that God hears you. You didn't even know what you were praying. Don't you know something of that? That is something that all Christians should know about, and you're likely to know more under the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. God will baptize you, God will pour, God will anoint you with the Holy Spirit. How do, how do we receive the anointing of the Holy Spirit? According to Scripture, we're just dealing with Scripture. Not dealing with, with uh, theories and denominational party lines. We're just trying to go back to Scripture a bit. How do people receive the Holy Spirit in Scripture? Well, the answer is, you shouldn't even be asking. I mean, most people in Scripture just believe in Jesus and they've got power and anointing and they're flowing in the Holy Spirit. They don't even have to ask that question. And maybe that's the way it was with you. Maybe you have anointing of the Spirit, you didn't know what to call it or where it came from, you don't even know what it is. You can't even theologize it. All you know is there was a power, an anointing, and a lubrication that came upon you, you didn't even know what name to give it. That's all right, that's, that's God, that's the Holy Spirit. Maybe it didn't work that way. Maybe you, you came to faith and you seemed a very powerless sort of Christian. And you had to pray and ask. Maybe some, something held you up, maybe... Maybe you did not know the work of the Holy Spirit because something was holding you up. What might it be that holds you up? Well, I think one thing will hold you up is not understanding justification. That's what held up Luther. That's what held up Wesley. For 13 years, Wesley was a servant of God. He went to be a missionary in colonial America. He wasn't even sure whether he was saved or not. He's struggling. He's in trouble. He, he doesn't even know the gospel very clearly until he discovers justification. When he hears someone reading of Luther, when he hears someone reading about the gospel, oh, when he hears that, my heart was strangely warmed. You, 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 need, you need the gospel there before it can be sealed. I think this is the great difference between having fellowship with somebody who really knows the gospel and someone who does not know the gospel but is saved. Have you ever had fellowship with a Roman Catholic? You meet a Roman Catholic and uh, they, they worship Mary, you go to the Catholic church, they mass every Friday and really they, they haven't a clue about the gospel. And yet you have the feeling that they're saved. Their life is clean and yet you have a sort of fellowship with them and you talk about Jesus and you, as, as you, you get on with them very well and yet you're miles apart sort of theologically, doctrinally, they're a million light years from where you are, but you have fellowship with them. I remember when, when some of us used to be in, um, Lesaka Christian Union in Zambia many years ago, you, you remember it. There used to be two Catholic nuns that come to those meetings. You remember them many years ago? Two Catholic nuns used to come to the meetings of the Christian Fellowship, which we founded in Lesaka many, many years ago. And, uh, 
I wasn't sure that I liked them coming. I sometimes used to preach to annoy them. I said, you know, we're not being baptized. You're not saved by being baptized. I would hope to annoy them and drive them away. I, I really wasn't quite sure I liked these Catholic nuns in my meeting. And I used to make it very clear that I did not believe in all this sort of baptismal regeneration sort of stuff. And I used to almost deliberately offend them sometimes. But you know, they never took offense. They just smiled at me and said, oh, yeah, yeah, we know. And, uh, <laughs> And they, and they loved the Lord and they kept on coming. I used to bump into them in, in the, in the ministry of, in, in the inspectorate, in the ministry of education. And years, years later, when they were school teachers, we used to bump into each other. Didn't we have good times in those? There's no, absolutely no doubt they were saved, rejoicing in God. They loved those meetings. And years later, we talk about them. Yet they were always Catholics and I, I don't think they really ended into much liberty and so on. But I was quite sure they were saved. You see, that's how you understand such people. Luther, Wesley said, I had the faith of a servant. You know, I was sort of saved, but uh, I, I was sort of serving God, trying to earn my salvation. I was like a sort of slave, trying to work for my salvation. I didn't really have the assurance of a son. That's the difference between a Christian who uh, does and does not have this outpouring of the Spirit. Everyone has the Holy Spirit in the sense of being born again and regenerate. We all have the Spirit in that way. If any man does not have the Spirit, he's none of his, Romans 8, 9. But... Um, but the gift of the Holy Spirit will give you assurance. And that's why sometimes you can meet somebody where you have a feeling that they're saved, and you have a kind of fellowship, and yet, and yet you know there's something missing in them. There's a, there's a lack of joy there. They, they, they don't grow. I, I mean, I know many Catholic Christians who are truly, truly saved, but you can know them for 20 years, and 20 years later, they're no, they're no further on from what they were when you knew them at the beginning. They don't grow. They still say, stay stuck for years. And they're doing, at the end of the 20 years, they're doing exactly the same thing they were doing at the beginning, just worshipping God, having charismatic prayer meetings and so on. But they're not, they're not growing. They're not growing in fellowship and love and power. They've not really received the Spirit in the way that's possible to them. What is the central gift of the outpouring of the Spirit? It is assurance. It is the seeding of sonship. It is His Spirit witnessing with your Spirit. Your Spirit knows already. You already know you're a child. You're already putting your faith in Jesus. But now His Spirit witnesses with your Spirit that you are a son of God. There's a kind of seeding. That's why the word seeding is you. Having believed the gospel, you were sealed, says Romans 1. One thirteen. Having you have to believe first. You have to believe the gospel first. If you don't believe the gospel properly, it will hold up the outpouring of the spirit. If you're not really clear that you're saved by grace, you're saved by mercy, you're saved by the blood of Christ. You can't be sealed because there's nothing to seal. There has to be something there before it can be sealed with the Holy Spirit. And lack of clarity with the gospel will hold you up. You'll be struggling, trying to earn your salvation, trying to work for God. Saying, "Well, I'm a Christian. I'm not quite sure. Hope I'm saved. I'm trying to be saved." You'll not be sure. A, a, a lack of understanding of the gospel will hold you up. It did, it did in, the, in the life of Wesley for years and years and years. That's what happens with people who are truly saved, but they get saved in some sort of funny way where they don't hear the gospel properly. They're held up for many, many years, though, although they are saved, we'll see them in heaven. When you really trust in the blood of Jesus Christ, that's, what, that's why there's a connection between baptism and the seeding of the Spirit. You see, baptism does not regenerate you, and baptism does not give the gift of the Spirit. But there often is a connection, and the sealing of the Spirit often comes at baptism. It did with Jesus. Jesus was being baptized. He's expressing his commitment to his calling. He's, he's putting himself in the place of sinners, and he's going he's to be uh, he's going to be serving sinners and being a substitute for sinners. And as he's entering into his calling, he receives power. As he's committing himself to God, he receives power. There's a kind of connection between the baptism in water and the baptism of the Spirit. I'm not saying the water brings the Holy Spirit, but I'm saying if you, when you express your face, anything might happen. 
That's why on the day of Pentecost, when those people have come to faith, they're believing Peter's preaching, and they cry out, what shall we do? Peter replies, we'll do two things. Number one, turn your whole life around. Repent and, and quit this opposition you've had from Jesus. Turn your whole life around. Know that he's the Son of God. Repent and express your faith in baptism. Ex- you've come to faith now. Express your faith and call upon God. Ask God for mercy. Ask God for blessing. Put your faith visibly, publicly, obviously, openly in the Son of God and call for blessing. And two things will happen to you. Number one, you'll feel forgiven. You'll experience the forgiveness of your sins. And number two, you will experience the power of the Spirit. What has just happened to us will happen to you. And you'll receive the power of the Holy Spirit. There's sometimes a connection between baptism and the gift of the Spirit. It's not that the water does anything, but expressing faith sometimes does something for you. I knew a little girl, she's not a little girl anymore, she's about 28 years old these days, but uh, I knew a little girl who, when she was nine years old, wanted to be baptized. She used to travel around with her mum, various evangelistic campaigns, hearing the gospel, she knew she believed in Jesus, she wanted to be baptized. She asked her mum, 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 can I be baptized? The mum said to her, no, you're too young, you wait a few years. He wasn't very happy with that, so she went to the meetings anyway. She went to the preachers. You know, when, when everyone's being baptized in the swimming pool, uh, you know, can I be baptized? The preacher said, well, how old are you? Well, I'm about, I'm nine. Does your mummy know what you're doing? No, but I want to be baptized. No, no, you know, wait a few more years. Nobody would baptize her. So as the baptismal services were going on, a very powerful personality little girl, she still is. She slipped into the swimming pool. She got hold of herself and she baptized herself. (laughs) And as she baptized herself, she came up praising God, worshiping God, and talking in tongues. (laughs) When anything, when when you get back, I'm I'm not a great, I'm not a fanatic when it comes to baptism. I'm very soft and low key on baptism, but I can tell you, anything can happen when you do what God tells you to do. And often, the Spirit can be poured out when you're expressing your faith and putting your trust in the gospel. God can do anything for you. Sometimes, you can be prayed for. But um, in the days in which we, would, we live, I would say, just be careful of psychological trickery. Often in many meetings, when you're being prayed for to receive the Spirit, people are putting pressure upon you, and let your, let your tongue hang loose, you know, say blah, 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 say something, talk in tongues, and people are trying to get you to talk in tongues, and they'll probably succeed. This is, that is psychological pressure. Don't submit yourself to that. Uh, that's not the real thing, and it won't, uh, it won't bring much blessing for you. But there are undoubtedly people around, I'm not one of them, but there are people around who, when they pray for you, that you receive the gift of the Spirit. But it's not psych- I'm not talking about psychological pressure. I'm not talking about trickery. But there are undoubtedly people when they pry, God hears their prayers and you're given the gift of the Spirit. Don't submit to pressure and trickery and, uh, and uh, hype. But uh, there are people around who when they pry, they impart blessings and gifting to you. Not, not, only, not only tongues, but, but anointings. And you remember Paul says to Timothy, stir up the gift that's upon you that came with you when I laid hands upon you. There are, there are times when uh, God can hear prayer. Laying on a fancy is just prayer, but there are people who have gifts of prayer, and there's some around who can pray in that way. Not everybody, and you can go to meetings and have hands laid upon you and nothing can happen. 
But, uh, but it's equally sure that some people do have giftings along that way. But I think the greatest test, the greatest scripture that I would use in this connection is John chapter 7. Jesus said, if anybody is thirsty, if you're thirsty, let him come to me. The, the baptism of the Spirit comes from Jesus. It comes a result as, as a result of fellowship with Jesus. Let him come to me and let him drink. Let him drink in the person of Jesus. Let him drink in the promises. Don't, don't claim an experience. Don't ask for the gift of tongues. Don't ask for some sort of experience. Ask for Jesus himself. Drink of Jesus himself. Live on the person of Jesus. And don't be surprised as you're living on the person of Jesus, you're suddenly entering into a kind of power, an anointing, and a liberty that you've never known in your life before. Put, come to me and drink, and out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. This he said of the Spirit, which those who believe should receive. That's the scripture for you. Come and drink of Jesus. There's a lot of questions that I've often asked myself over the years. Here are some of them. Can you be baptized with the Spirit slowly? Is it possible to just be slowly topped up? My answer, I don't see why not. You have to be knocked to the ground and talk in tongues. I don't think it's 100% indispensable. I don't see why God shouldn't baptize you through it gently and quietly. When D.L. Moody was baptized of the Spirit, he was walking along the streets of New York and he said, I had such an experience of his love, I had to ask him to stay his hand. I had to say, Lord, no, I don't want any more. I said, enough, Lord, please, please stop. I had to ask him to stay his hands. But I don't think everybody is baptized of the Spirit in a D.L. Moody fashion. When Jonathan Edwards wrote the story of the Great Awakening in America, he used to say, how gentle were the outpourings of the Spirit. How sweet and gently people came into joy and liberty. How intense is it, is, it, is, it, is it as an experience? I answer, the only rule is that there are no rules. The only rule is that there's no rules. God can do it any way he likes. Could it happen slowly? I don't see why not. Does it have to be emotional? It'll be conscious, you'll be, you'll know that you've entered into something that you never knew before. Does it have to knock you to the ground? I don't think so. Don't, don't make too many rules for God. I like to say to people, it doesn't matter how you get there as long as you get there. It doesn't matter how you get there as long as you get to know rivers of living water and a power and a lubrication and anointing which you know is coming from the Holy Spirit. The only rule is that there's no rules. Do you have to speak in tongues? No. Might I speak in tongues? Yes. Don't, don't standardize things. Conversion is not standardized. People are saved in a thousand different ways. Some people, John the Baptist was full of the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He grew up knowing he believed, didn't even know how he believed. You can be saved and can't even remember when you're saved. My, my son, Calvin, can't remember when he was saved. I can remember. He was four years old. I can remember, but he can't. He was too young. He can't remember it, but I can. You may, you may just know, I don't even know how I got saved. All I know is I grew up knowing Jesus. Same thing is true of the Holy Spirit. I don't even know how it happened. All I know is I have a joy unspeakable, full of glory and anointing and a power. I don't even know how I got there. All I know is I've got there. That's all right. There's no rules about it. But just know there's such a thing as the power, the anointing, the lubrication of the Spirit. If Jesus needed it, 
you need it. If Jesus couldn't begin his ministry without this anointing of the Spirit, there's no way in which you can have any ministry without knowing something of the anointing of the Spirit. Seek him, ask him. Don't don't get into psychological trickery. Ask him, seek him. Tell him that you want to know, you want his presence more than anything else in the world. You're not looking for any special experience, but you want him. You want his his lubrication. Oil is, is... lubrication, it's flow, it's ease. You, you put oil in a machine to make, it, to make it go faster with ease. You want lubrication, you want power, you want this kind of anointing. You want something which seals you. You want a foretaste of heaven, the sealing of the Spirit, which is the earnest of heaven, the foretaste of heaven until you get there. A little bit of heaven to go to heaven in. You want it now, this consciousness and awareness. And Jesus was a man of the Holy Spirit. He was a man but he was a man of the Holy Spirit because he knew that experience from the earliest phase of his ministry. It wasn't in his hands. The timing was not in his hands. He couldn't switch it on. But he could do what the Father said. He could get baptized. He could join the ministry of John the Baptist. He could, he could obey God. He couldn't, he, he, so it wasn't in his control. But he could obey the Father, look for the Father to pour out the Spirit. And that's what happened to him. And it launched him on his ministry as the, son, as the Son of God. And if you know anything similar, it will launch you on a ministry, not as the Son of God, but as a Son of God, a child of God. Launch you into ministry, into power. You'll, you'll, you'll have a testimony. You won't have to tell anybody. They'll come and ask you. They'll come to you and they'll say, what happened to you then? And you'll say, well, what do you mean? They'll say, well, something's happened to you because you're not the person you were. What, what happened to you? And you'll have to tell them. Well, actually, I was praying one day, and uh, God really blessed me. You don't have to tell them. They'll come and ask you. Sometimes the first thing they'll see is the change in your face. changes your face. A bit of glory comes into your face. You begin, you begin to shine a little bit. People will see, oh, there's something about you. You know, what's happened to you? There's sort of joy in you. There's a walk in your steps. Something's happened to you. Tell us what it is. And you'll say, well, the Lord bless me with his Holy Spirit. And without boasting, you'll be able to say, you know, I was seeking God, and he blessed me. I've entered into something new in my life. You don't have to boast about it, but you'll be able to say, God gave you something, and that's where the power is coming from.